Matthew chapter 28. You see on your handout, this is part two. Uh, and I, I know that many of you were here last week, but some of you were not. Um, if you were not, I, th- I thought about this. I haven't put deep thought, and I surely have not gone through and looked, flipped every section uh, through the book of Matthew. It's 28 chapters. But if I had to estimate, I'm going to say we've probably done around 150 messages in Matthew. And certainly we would include in my comment I'm about to make those that had to do with the crucifixion and the resurrection. So those are given. But if you were to say, Jeff, uh, are there like a few messages in this whole study that has stood out to you among the others? It's just me. Uh, There are three. There was a message back in chapter 7 about entering at the narrow gate. Um, If you haven't heard that message and you're not a Christian yet, I would encourage you, if you don't hear anything else we ever say, go back and it's probably February, I think of 2020, I believe somewhere around there. But chapter 7, I think somewhere around verse 14, 13 or 14, entering at the narrow gate, that one stands out to me. And then another one was not that long ago and that was in chapter 26. And it had to do with Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that was one that in my world stood out to me the most. And if I were to say a third one, I would say last week's message. uh, Really, the Lord impressed that upon me. And so I'm not going to try to follow last week's message. That was that that message. But this is part two uh, to finish these crucial five verses as we conclude this book of Matthew. Uh, So it is part two. So on your handout, it looks a little weird on your, on your handout. The, the outline, you're like looking at what in the world. We have a regular number two and not a Roman number, not, not a Roman number one. What's going on? Um, so we had three main points last week in verses 16 through 19a. Verse 16 and 17, we noticed this. The disciples worship Jesus. That was 16 and 17. Second thing we noticed was that Jesus makes this claim to have all authority. That was verse 18. And then we started the third main point. There's going to be a fourth one here a little later. But we started a third main point where Jesus gives his last commands. As recorded in Matthew, he gives his last commands. And we only have time to get into the first one of those. But as you'll remember, it's the key command of those. And so what I want to do is I want to jump in. We're going to read the text again. I'm going to do a review. So as I thought about last week's message, you always do a review And I've come up with what I believe are five key things from last week. If you didn't hear that, um, then try to get these. If you did, then ask the Lord to review in your heart uh, what we looked at last week. Um, And we'll do that right after the reading. So um, before we read verse 16, here's the scene. Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. He has resurrected. He has sent the word to his disciples to meet him in Galilee. He has shown himself alive multiple times. Matthew doesn't cover them all. He's shown himself alive multiple times to the disciples uh, in Jerusalem. But he's also sent word for them to go up to Galilee, back to their homeland. And he will meet them there. And that's what we find in verses 16 and following. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee in obedience. To the mountain which Jesus had directed them. We don't know which, that, which mountain that was. But they went exactly where the Lord had told them to go. And as we pointed out, when you obey the Lord, good things happen. Verse 17. And when they saw him. So they obey the Lord, go where he says. And Jesus appears to them in his resurrected body. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. So they fell. They are like zealously worshipping the Lord. 
But some, either some of the eleven or some others that were not of the eleven, are hesitating, apparently, about worshiping the Lord. Is that even the right thing to do? Well, the Lord answers the question very thoroughly if it is the right thing to worship Him or not. Verse 18. After they're worshiping Him, and Jesus came and said to them... So, 18 is a crucial part of the text. Jesus has the audacity to say, all authority. All means all. Let that sink in. Here's Jesus saying, all authority in heaven. This is new information to them. This has to blow their mind. They know he's the Christ. But they don't think of the Christ as having all authority in heaven. That's where God has all authority. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth. Notice the past tense, has been given, so he's talking about an event, has been given to me, Jesus says. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then based on that, here comes his command, the last command that he gives. Go, therefore, the therefore meaning because I have all authority, go, therefore, he's telling the eleven, and make disciples of all nations. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And then here will be our fourth point in, in a little, little while. And behold, I am with you Always. Always there means like every second of every moment. I will be with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you to the end of the age. What happens after the end of the age? Then we're with him. I'm with you to the end of the age when you will be with me. All right, let's review quickly. So we noticed certain things. I don't have time to go over it all, and I'm not going into them deeply like we did last week. But we've already, just to get a running start, I want to give you five thoughts, five truths by way of review. Number one, that verse 18 where Jesus came and says, All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. What the Lord is doing there, he's referring to a very specific event. So again, as we said, as the Son of God, he's the eternal Son of God, and he is equal with God the Father. He's not less than, so he already has all authority. So what is this given to me? This is referring to a moment in time before this point when Jesus spoke it, but after his incarnation. So this is when he, the eternal son of God, has become a human being and he's now the God-man. At some point, this man, the God-man, was given all authority. So that as Jesus, who was a Jewish man, he now sits on the throne of the universe. A man is running the universe at this moment. It is the God-man. So the new aspect there was this human being given all authority while still retaining his deity. The second thought that we gave was this thing that we call the Great Commission, verses 19 and 20, is urgent. Why is it urgent? I want us to feel this again. The Great Commission is urgent for four reasons. Number one, all people need to be saved. All people need to be saved. All people are born in sin. They are on their way to hell. We're born on our way to hell, and we will go there because our sins must be paid for. All people need to be saved. Second reason it's urgent. God has made a way for people to be saved. He's made a way. Third reason it's urgent. Jesus and faith in him, what he did on the cross, is the only way to be saved. So God has made a way. 
But he's not made ways to be saved. He has only made a way to be saved. So let me be clear. Something I, didn't, I don't think I said last week. Belief in God, many people around the world, the majority of people around the world believe in God or a God. Maybe not the God of the Bible, but they know that there is a God and they're accountable to him. And they, they feel this and they believe this. That will not get them to heaven. The only way to heaven is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So the fourth reason, it is urgent. So here it is again. Everybody needs to be saved. God has made a way for people to be saved. Jesus is the only way to be saved. And number four, billions of people have never heard about Jesus. That's why the Great Commission is urgent. Number three. So here's a third point of review. Verses 19 and 20 is not a list of four different commands. It's not a list of four separate commands. It's not like go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. No. The grammar and the structure and the whole flow of this commands, these commands are really one command. It's the second thing in that list that I just gave. The command of Christ, and this is it, ladies and gentlemen, is to make disciples. These other three ideas are supporting that and showing. These are activities that show what the making disciples looks like and describe how it is done. It is this idea of, as you go, make disciples. And then when you make disciples, the idea of they're saved and converts, now baptize them. Baptizing them, the disciples. And then teaching them, getting them baptized, you're not done. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever. So going and baptizing and teaching They don't stand on their own. They're all part of this process of making disciples. Fourth thing, by way of review. All of the Great Commission, all of verse 19 and 20 is applying to all Christians. If you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I'm a Christian, then all of this text applies to you. Here's the only question. All of it applies to you. So the only question is, Where are you going to be when it applies to you? So what we learned last week, some people are called to go into foreign nations to take the gospel to foreign nations. That's where they're going to fulfill the Great Commission. You say, well, that's not me. I've not yet been called to a foreign nation. Okay, then you were intended to fulfill the Great Commission here by praying for them and by giving of your finances and resources to support them on the foreign land while you are fulfilling the Great Commission here. So it's not an either or where God didn't call me to take the gospel to the nation, so I guess I'm just a regular Christian. No, you're called then to fulfill the Great Commission here. And then number five, the fifth one. What we learned is there's an imbalance in missions, and we need to rectify that balance, but not just abandon what has been happening. So without revisiting all of that, we studied for a few minutes this unique land of Turkey, the country of Turkey. At one point, that landmass at one point in the New Testament was one of the most reached places on earth, but now that place is 99.8% Muslim. It is now the unreached. What has happened? They stopped investing and keeping that as a reached place with the gospel, and it got abandoned, and now it is the unreached. So here's what we got to do. We need to go reach the 3 billion who've never heard the gospel while still maintaining the 4.75 billion population that has heard the gospel or at least has access to the gospel. So it's not like just stop maintaining and go to the unreached. No, it's do that while also maintaining the current areas where we have reached the, the gospel is reached. So now we get to our third major point and the second thought under that, and it's this 
Go make disciples. How? What will that look like? After they have been converted, then write number two. We're starting on actual number two this morning. Verse 19. Baptize disciples in the name. I'm going to use a word that's not even in the Bible, but you'll understand. Baptize disciples in the name of the Trinity. Look at verse 19 after you write that. Go, therefore... Here's what the Lord's telling us as we're closing the book of Matthew. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing them. So, guys, we have done quite a few baptisms over the last several years, and each time we do that, you you guys know me, right? I just have something about me. I have some fears that I will not just let us just like launch into a baptismal service because I'm afraid somebody's going to be here that doesn't understand what baptism is and isn't. And so I'm going to rehearse some things and maybe even have a few little nuances to it. But let's talk about baptism. You ready? Number one, let's just think with me. Let's, let's, let's state again what we've said so many times. Settle in your heart. Baptism in no way saves a person from their sins. Water baptism does not save anyone from our sins. It is purely symbolic. I want you to understand that. If you were to say, Jeff, what is baptism? It is an outward, physical expression. It's a symbolic, outward, physical expression of an inward, spiritual, prior reality. Let me say it again. Baptism is a symbolic outward physical expression of something that has already happened prior to this that is spiritual and inward that you can't see. In other words, no one should get baptized in order to be saved or to finalize their salvation. You get baptized because you are saved. That's what the Lord is teaching. Once they're saved and they're what we would call maybe a convert, then move them to become from a convert to become a disciple by being baptized. Baptizing them is how you will make Disciples, if you're taking notes, write the following thought. What Jesus is calling for is everyone, and I dare say if we took a show of hands, I'm not going to do it right now. Most all of us, I'll bet you 95, probably 98%, maybe 100% in here would say, oh, I've trusted Christ as my Savior. He's my Lord and Savior. I've received Him. What Christ is saying is everyone who claims Him as Lord and Savior, He wants them to go public. He wants you to go public. He doesn't want any secret disciples. So if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, oh, I would raise my hand that I've trusted Christ as Lord and Savior and I did it at such and such a time in my life, then I've got to ask you, have you been baptized? Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized in the biblical order? I'm not going to take time to do it. We'll end up there, Lord willing, in a few months, a little over a year from now probably. But when we get to Acts chapter 10, we're going to find this man Cornelius, and we're going to find the biblical order. He's going to hear the gospel. He's going to to believe the gospel. He's going to receive the Holy Spirit, and then he's going to get baptized. And when we get there, I want you to remember that. And you'll notice that he's going to receive the Holy Spirit before he gets baptized. Listen, you don't receive the Holy Spirit unless you're born again and saved. So you're already saved before you get baptized. But you need to get baptized. The Lord doesn't want you just to be secret and private and ashamed of him. If you have not done this, what are you waiting on? To not do this is to disobey the clear commands of Christ. So he's calling all of his people to come forward publicly. Again, if you're taking notes, I want you to write three thoughts. Baptism, we could say, in essence, is a confession of at least three things. Those of you who say, oh, Jeff, I'm born again, I'm saved, and I have been baptized. 
Well, I hope you knew this, and if you didn't, let's rehearse what we should know when we went into the water. Number one, here's your confession. By just getting baptized, here's what you're saying. I know I am a sinner, but I have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. That's what you're saying when you get baptized. I'm admitting that I am a sinner. I am a sinner, but I have trusted Christ to save me from my sin. Jesus' baptism that he's talking about here in chapter 28 is not the first baptisms in the book of Matthew, nor going on at this time. All of the Gospels talked about John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is baptizing people in the River Jordan. What is Jesus talking about? Is this the same thing or is it a little different? Watch. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was saying, come, be baptized as a sign that you have repented. I'm recognizing my sin. I am turning from my sin. I'm turning to the Lord. I'm going to forsake. I've changed my mind about my sin. I don't love it anymore. I don't want it anymore. I will still commit acts of sin, but I hate my sin. I am now turning to the Lord. The, the Lord Jesus' baptism is all of that, but with this new element. I have that repentance of sin, but I'm also including this expression of specific faith that I believe this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, the Son of God, and he's the Savior and the Lord, and I'm taking him as that. I'm aligning myself with him and his people. Second thing that this is a confession of. We hit this often anytime we're probably in Romans. This will, by the way, I hope you'll get this concept. It'll save us a few minutes a little bit later. Anytime we're in Ephesians, we're going to probably hit this concept. When you get baptized, what you should be thinking and what you are expressing, this is where the symbolism comes in. You're saying this, I, not only am I a sinner and I've trusted Christ, but the reason that does something for me is because I was in Christ in his death and his burial and his resurrection. I was spiritually placed into Christ in his death and his burial and resurrection. And that's where... The symbolism comes in. So let's review something real quick. Okay, can we do that? We have two men here. One's to my left and one's to my right. Over here we have Adam. So here's what you want to understand. If you'll just picture the shape of a man or a circle, it doesn't matter. But this circle or or, or shape of a man represents Adam. And Adam was our representative. He He was our forefather. And he sinned and he led the whole human race. You and I were all, we're all born in Adam. All are born in Adam. That's why you have two eyes, two two legs, two arms, two hands. That's why you have a heart and lungs and a liver because this is what Adam had. You're in the nature of Adam and you were born in this world with his sin nature. All are born in Adam. But God made a law that we're going to read about in a few minutes in Romans That God made another law that if you will put your faith and trust in Christ, then you will be removed from Adam's condemnation for his sin that you inherited and fulfilled yourself. You will be moved from Adam to be put in Christ. So that whatever Christ does, he is now your representative. So that as Jesus is on the cross, and as Jesus is in the grave, and as Jesus is resurrected, that counts as you. He's my representative. He's our substitute. When he was dying on the cross, I'm dying in him. When he's buried in the tomb, I'm buried with him. When he rose again, I rose again. And all this is pictured in baptism. Let me hit something I don't always hit. Because we don't, it it isn't like the main thing. But while we're here, this is a symbolic action. Baptism. The word itself, guys, means to be placed into Right? To be placed into. It means to be immersed. 
So that's why here at Grace View and in Baptist churches, we use immersion. I'll go and tell you guys. Our Presbyterian friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are Presbyterian, a lot of Baptists can learn a lot of good things from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters about the sovereignty of God and salvation and about church government. They have a lot that we can learn from them, and thankfully, Grace View has learned those things in, in those areas. But I honestly, I, I, they, they disconnect from me right here. I do not understand two things. Why do you guys sprinkle people when you baptize them? That is not the New Testament manner in which people are baptized. The word means to be immersed and placed into, right? The Lord dies on the cross. He's buried down in the water, and he comes up again. This is all signified in the symbolism. That is not brought out in sprinkling water. The other thing, which I have even a bigger problem with, is why do they baptize infants? Notice who is to be baptized. Look at verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. It doesn't say, go baptize disciples and, oh, by the way, hit their little infant babies too. No, we don't know if these babies are going to be disciples or not. If, and when they put their faith in Christ, then they are to get baptized. All you're doing is adding confusion by baptizing little infants. It's not in the Bible. It is nowhere in the New Testament. I really don't understand. I love them. I love them to death. We've got a lot we can learn from them. And they need to learn that from us. <laughs> they really do. I don't understand. I've heard some. I've read uh, um, Brother R.C. I read his commentary, and he tried to explain it one time. And I read it about three or four times. I'm like, I still don't get it. I just don't see it in the Bible. But I love R.C. Sproul, and he's with the Lord right now. And other good ones as well. All right, third thing. By going and being baptized, here's what a person is saying. Get it. By my obeying this command of Christ shows that I intend to obey all the other commands of Christ. By obeying this command, I'll just tell you straight up, hey Jeff, why baptism? If it doesn't wash our sins away and the water's not that special, nothing holy about it, it's, it's this symbolic, then why do it? What, it? what is so great about this act of baptism? Here's all I say, Jesus says do it, so do it. And it has a beautiful picture within it. So what the person should be thinking is, I'm obeying this step, this command of Christ, as a, as a sign and as, a, as an indication. My intention. By the way, it will be very imperfectly, but it will be increasingly in my life. Let me say that again. Imperfectly, I'm going to be obeying the, all the other commands of Christ. Imperfectly, but increasingly. And I'm showing that by obeying this first command of Christ. And so I would contend if someone says they're a true Christian, and maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've heard us talk about baptism over and over, but you just refuse to do it. Maybe you're scared of the water or you don't like public people, you know, everybody looking at you and you're very shy and nervous. Get over it. You're commanded to be baptized and to go public in obedience to the Lord's command. One last thought, and that's at the second part of verse 19, or the latter part. Baptize in the name of. So we have the Father, the Son, the Spirit. So what does this mean? You remember the Shema? The Jewish Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is. Then I know the next word. One. So there's only one God. But within the Godhead, and I, I don't understand this, so I'm just going to say it. Within the Godhead, the one God, there are three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Now here's the thing. Here's what I'm taking away from this. All three members of the Godhead, yet one God, yet three distinct people, all three members of the Godhead have a part in our salvation. It's God the Father's plan. He's the one who declares us righteous. Jesus is the one who executes it and dies on the cross to make it possible. The Holy Spirit is the one who writes the gospel down. He's the one who convicts us of our sin. He gives us faith to believe. He quickens our spirit and brings us to life. So we can have faith in Christ. So the Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son are all part of this. And so we're being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But I think there's still one other thing in this being baptized in the single name of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what is it? To be baptized in the name of is an inclination that I am closely associated with each member of the Godhead. By this new relationship and this new faith that I have, by being a convert and a disciple of Christ, I've now entered a new relationship. And so what are those relationships? Write this down. Number one. Every Christian should know that he is God the Father's, anybody want to guess? Child. That's right. Every Christian is in this. That's a, awesome. I have been placed into a new relationship. I am God the Father's child. I'm his child. Now, this next one, I used one of the words that start with the letter B, but if you want to put that one and another one as well, there are a couple of choices here. We are in this close association with God the Son as his what? His what? Body or, the word you'll see on the screen, the bride of Christ. That's a close relationship. I'm, been, I'm new. This new faith I have in Christ, I've now entered a new relationship with the Son of God as his bride. With the Father, God the Father, as his child. And then lastly, we're in a relationship. Every Christian is God the Holy Spirit's temple. We are the temple that he actually lives in and dwells in. And so, everyone who is a disciple and not just a convert will obey the command of Christ. If you are knowingly and willfully choosing to resist that, you are living in disobedience to the one that you have said is the Lord. And you should be baptized two weeks from now. Send a message to Brother Mike. Fill out the form. Put it in the box on the way out as you exit. Number three. What are these commands of Christ? The main one being go make disciples. What would that look like as you go make disciples? As you go intentionally make disciples. As you make disciples, you'll be baptizing them. And as you make disciples, teach disciples to observe the commands of Jesus. Teach disciples to observe Jesus' commands. And I thought about this just this morning. We've got a lot of veteran Christians here. I understand that. Do you guys, y'all sense, and isn't it obvious that verse 19 is talking about evangelism? Go make disciples and evangelize and tell them the gospel. Help them put their faith and trust in Christ. Get them saved. So if that's so key and there's all these people who've never heard the gospel and they're going to go to hell if they don't put their faith in Christ, that is so urgent. Is it really that important that we teach people after they're saved? Is that really that important? I mean, we need to get them saved. They're on the way to hell. Let's get them going to heaven. Isn't that the main thing? I understand, okay, but is it that important to invest so much time and energy into the teaching of the disciples? 
Obviously, you know I'm going to answer that with a yes because I'm not going to undermine the point I'm about to make, all right? I wouldn't do that. It would be very foolish. But why is it the right thing to do? Why is it a yes? It is important. Well, again, just keep it simple. Number one, Jesus says do it. So if Jesus says teach, don't just get them saved. Teach the disciples to observe all of his commands, then that's enough in and of itself. But every now and then, I think I've run across these people. I think I could even name a couple of people that I'm thinking of because their lifestyle shows that they're all about evangelism and they're not really anything about discipleship. I don't know if you've ever met anybody like that. And I think that the mindset would probably go like this. I ain't got time to disciple. People are on their way to hell. We've got to evangelize the lost. So do we really need to spend all this time and energy into the teaching of people who are already saved? Well, again, Jesus said to do it, but number two, I would add the following. A growing, trained, and obedient disciple will end up filling in the ranks of those who are going to go evangelize and make more disciples. Does that make sense? Why do we need to spend all this energy? Because if you'll get those people who are converts, teach them the gospel, teach them to obey the Lord, train them in the word of God, and then they will go out if they're truly living in obedience, they're going to start helping. It's this idea. Multiplication destroys addition every time. So you can live your life. I'm out winning that one and that one and that one and that one to Christ. But you, you never train them in the ways of Christ. Then when you die, then it kind of stops with you. And that little generation stopped. What if, even if you won less people to the Lord, if you invested in the people you have won, and they go win more, who wins more, who wins more, then all of a sudden a real movement has happened and many people are brought to Christ. This is important. This step is important. Discipleship is teaching. It is crucial. Look again, if you would, verse 20. Let me read it a few times and... Inflect a little differently each time. Look at verse 20. Teaching them. See it? Teaching them. What is the Great Commission? Go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. Te well, let's do it again. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I've commanded. All that I've commanded. Teach them. Now watch. Let's do it again. Teaching. Here's discipleship. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He's talking to the 11. Hey, you 11... Your job is to go teach them that you win all that I've commanded you. And obviously as you teach them, if they're fulfilling all that, I've all that I've commanded you, then they will be winning and teaching others to do all that I've commanded you. And this literally just keeps going all the way until the day and age we live. Discipleship is teaching, it's learning, it's obeying. Piper writes of verse 18. John Piper writes the following. He says, so catch this. He says, Jesus' final command was to teach all his commands. But then he writes, actually, the final command was more precise than that. Back up and read it again. He begins, Jesus' final command was to teach all his commands. But actually, the final command was more precise than that. He did not say, teach them all my commandments. He said, teach them to observe all my commandments. And Piper notes, he says, you can teach a parrot all of Jesus' commandments. But you cannot teach a parrot to observe them. So what that means is our goal here, ladies and gentlemen, in all that we do, our goal is not so that 
we have a group of Christians that when asked can just start listing off the demands of Christ and the commands of Christ, not the goal. The goal is not if we were to slide an exam in front of you, you could start writing them out and li- or pull them out of a multiple choice or write essays on all the very... The goal is not for you to be able to write an essay on all the commands of Christ. The goal when we're discipling, here's my job and it'll take me all my life and your job is to do this with me as well. Our job is to help each other to learn and understand and grow and observe to do all the commands of Christ. All of them. To do all of the commands of Christ. So Piper writes, parrots will not repent. Now you could teach a parrot the word. What does Jesus say? Repent. You, you can do that. They, they will do that. What does Jesus say? Worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. Is that the goal? Boy, we've trained our folks down there at Grace View. They can recite the commands of Christ, but they're living like the devil. And that's not the goal. He says, parents will not repent and worship Jesus and lay up treasures in heaven and love their enemies and go out like sheep in the midst of wolves to herald the kingdom of God. So the goal is not just to get us to parrot back what Christ has said. It's deeper than that. Hold your spot here. I want you to join me in two places. The first one is very quick, Matthew 5. Go backwards if you would, Matthew 5. This is Sermon on the Mount. There at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. Just one verse. He's just given the Beatitudes. And Christ chases that with verse 16. I'm mainly going for one phrase. Look at verse 16. In the same way. So how you have a light. Notice all of our lights are up in the ceiling, right? Um, You don't have a light and put it down under a bushel. No, you put it up high where it gives light to all who are in the house. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light. Everybody hear this verse. This is Christ speaking to us. Let your light shine before others. He's talking about your life. Let your life be so different that it shines forth light. Because you're the light of the world. In the same way, let your light shine before others. So that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So what Christ is saying is, I want you to follow my teaching. He begins at the beginning of his ministry. And he says, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He doesn't say, do good works and live an unusual life in obedience to me so that you will get to go to heaven by your good works. No, don't live this unusual life of light and following Christ and obedience to him so that everybody will look at you and say, wow, you're really great and you are glorified. No, the the purpose is so that you'll live this life so that God is glorified. So again, not to save yourself by your works, And not to glorify yourself by your work so that everybody's like, boy, he or she is awesome. They're a great person. We are to live in a way where people go, God is great because I see it and how that person lives. Now, more specifically, to what I want us to hit, go, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. That greatest chapter in the Bible. Unless you think it's 5, 6, and 7. Brother Jeff, Gilry. (laughs) But you love eight as well. And really, eight doesn't stand alone because the third word word in in verse one tells us we're looking back to all that's been taught. So I'm going to confess to you, I'm going to say some things here, and and this is the part of the message I think I'm probably maybe a little nervous that I'm going to 
maybe be misunderstood or maybe say some things incorrectly. And so I hope you'll hear the gist and that the Lord would, would use it accordingly. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember I talked about that a while ago. We're born in Adam, but you can be placed in Christ so that his death, burial, and resurrection counts for you. And you get saved by that. The result is there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus if you're saved. Not only is there not going to be condemnation at the judgment day, there's no condemnation. There's people sitting in this room right now. You feel condemned because of what you've done the last day or two. You're feeling really beat up, really down. There's no condemnation. There's love. There's probably distance between you and your Lord, but there's no condemnation. It's all gone. How? Verse 2. Why is there no condemnation for those of us in Christ? For the law, watch, you're going to have two word law, two times the word law is coming up here, two ideas. For the law of the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Everybody look this way. So we have the law of the Spirit of life, and we have the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is the law of Moses, which says if you break God's laws, and here's 613 of them, we make a lot about the ten. But if you break God's laws, you're going to die. You're going to die physically, you're going to die physically, and you're going to be separated from God throughout all eternity. This is the law of sin and death. That one was given first, but there's a later law, and later law outranks previous law. And so the law of the Spirit has said that law still stands. You're born in that law. You're born married to this law. But when you put your faith and trust in Christ... You die to the law because Christ died in your place on the cross. And now you get married to a new law, another law. And it's the law of the spirit of life. And the law of the spirit of life says that if you put your faith and trust in Christ, then that separation because of your sin and that condemnation will not apply to you. So the Holy Spirit who wrote the Old Testament and the New says, put your faith and trust in Christ. You will be removed from Adam's condemnation. You'll be brought into life with Christ. Now, how did God do this? Does God just sit up in heaven like, guess what? I'm going to change the laws because I can. I feel like it. He does it on the basis of something. Verse 3. How does God do this? For God has done what the law, we're talking about the Old Testament law that we were born in. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. I'm going to tell you guys, just telling us. Not to commit murder, not to steal, and not to lie, and not to covet is not going to keep us from coveting and lying and stealing. We can't help it. We love sin. We're born loving sin. So we need something other than that. Try harder doesn't work. Verse 3. For God has done, not us, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh. The problem is not the law. The problem is our flesh. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How? He does two things. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came. He looked like every other human being that would be a sinner, but he wasn't. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he, God, condemned sin in the flesh. That happened on the cross. So the first thing God did to make this transaction from Adam's condemnation over to life in Christ and the Holy Spirit makes this covenant alive for us. What does God do? He sends his son to take the punishment. Sin had to be punished, and it was in Christ. 
But the second thing, notice what, the, what God does. Verse 3 begins, God has done what the law could not do. Now verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement, hang with me right here, Grace View. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, if we put a comma right there, then I would say that's still talking about what Jesus did on the cross, and that's all it meant. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law and died for us. But this is talking about something more because the comma is not after the word fulfilled. It's after the word us. Read it again. Why did God do this? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So what is God doing? I want to explain this and I'm going to have you write a note. And hopefully as we go, this, this last part will make more and more sense. But I want you to catch those two words. God has done this in order that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled. Not just by Christ, but by Christ in us. So that tells me something. God cares about righteousness among his people. So we can't use the old, well, I could never do it. You just said, Brother Jeff, try harder doesn't work. Yeah, that's before you got saved. There's a new motor in the car. And now we are able to do what we never could do before. So here's the note. I don't want it to be taken wrong. I probably should have added more words to this than what you'll see on the screen. The second word is key. Write this down. The focus, the focus, that's the focus. This is not the whole of it. The focus of New Testament discipleship, which we're talking about in Matthew 28, is not the Old Testament law. The focus, you say, Jeff, we're talking about discipleship and teaching people who are disciples. Right. The focus is not the Old Testament law, but the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. L write that far and then let's pause. Because right about there, you may be thinking, okay, I think our preacher is basically pitting Scripture against Scripture, and he is saying that the Old Testament is useless. No, I'm not saying it's useless. I'm saying it is less than the new. The, we, we were married to the law, and it was good. Hear me. The law is good. The law is perfect. The problem is I'm not. And so I had to die to that in Christ. I got a divorce from the law. Actually, I, I didn't get a divorce from it. When you're married and you die, then you're no longer married to what you were married to before. So I died in Christ to the law, and now I get to have this new husband. And the new husband is Christ and in his life. Let's keep going. So, Jeff, are you saying you're not against the Old Testament? No, 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 please. Now, hear this. The Old Testament gives us the nature of God. It shows us God. I learned something about him because he likes this activity and he hates this. He says, don't do this or this or this. That tells me things about God. And he says, do these things. And that tells me something about God. So the Old Testament is very valuable. And, and. The New Testament tells us that it was written for our admonition and for our learning. And there are things the children of Israel did. And we are supposed to study that. And we're supposed to learn what to do and what not to do. Learn from their mistakes and learn from the, the few things they did right. But we've got to study it to learn it. And we study the law. But now let's finish our note. The focus of New Testament discipleship is not the Old Testament law, but the, but the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. Why? Moses' law is good. But it was designed to get us lost. 
It was designed to point us to our desperate need of a Savior. So I would contend, if I'm talking to an unsaved person, you want to know what part of the Scripture I'm probably going to begin with that person? I'm going to begin in the Old Testament with them. I want them to feel the weight of the law. They need to get really good and lost. They need to feel desperate like, you know what? I can never be saved then on my own. That's exactly right. You cannot be saved on your own. You have broken and shattered the laws of God. So the law is very useful. When the law came, sin revived and I died. I realized my death, Paul teaches. When the law came, it stirs up sin like it increased the trespass, according to the book of Romans. So the law is very useful. So what's the contrast? I want you to write this note. Sorry, wait a minute. The law helps us understand we need to get saved, but what about after we get saved? Well, we still study the law to understand the nature of God, but more than that, write the following. Jesus' demands are given to us to glorify God by displaying His ability to actually fulfill God's law inside of us by providing the power to fulfill the law of God by His Holy Spirit inside us. I know that's a long note, and you probably need to go home and unpack it. And think about it. So I'm not pitting Scripture against Scripture. I'm not, I'm not lessening the Old Testament. I'm elevating the New Testament commands of Christ. Even above that of the Old Testament. Because their purposes are different. The commands of Christ are not to get us lost. They're for us to live this life that glorifies God. That is now possible. That was not possible before. Go back to verse 4. You're in Romans. As soon as you've written that. You've got seven, eight words to write. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous... Why did God do all this? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. God wants the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. How is this going to happen? Only by doing the end of verse 4 is a Christian now equipped to do it. We who walk not according to the flesh and our own ability, that didn't work. We tried that. We told people over, I'm going to stop. I'm going to do better. We never do. But here it is. We who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And before I finish this thought, I want to share this. So lest you're thinking, all right, are you implying that we focus on Jesus and His commands and we don't really worry about the Old Testament, so I guess... If the Old Testament just gets run over, we don't worry about it. We just obey Christ. To that I would answer this. If you and I will study the Old Testament for what it is, but have as a main focus in our discipleship the teachings of Christ and His apostles in the New Testament, the same Holy Spirit that wrote the New Testament and the Old living inside of you will never lead you to break God's Old Testament law. He will lead you to go further than the Old Testament law. So it is not a less life, it is a greater life. Remember, Jesus gave us the true insight to the law. If you only go through life thinking, I'm going to try to live up to the Old Testament law, you may be fooled to think since you've not committed the act of murder, you're fine. Jesus says, oh, no, 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 you've heard don't commit murder. But I say to you, don't even have anger. Don't insult someone. Don't tell someone, thou fool. You've heard don't commit adultery. And you probably think you're fine as long as you don't commit the act. I say don't even look on a woman with intention of lusting after her. You've heard 
Don't break your oaths to keep your oaths. I tell you, don't even make oaths and swearing. Just live a life that is honest. You've heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, turn the other cheek and forgive your enemies. Christ is worried about your heart. He shows us the real intention of God. We could never do it on our own. But all of a sudden, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And he says, now true godliness is always available for the believer because you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And when you tune into him and let him be the engine, you will start living a life that only God could live. And then people will glorify the Father. That's what Christ is after. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. So what are these commands of Christ? Let's just cover about 50 or 60 of them, okay? No, I'm kidding. Let me read a dozen, okay? This is a small sample. Jesus commands everybody in the whole world, you must be born again. You've been born physically. You have to be born again spiritually. He tells everyone, repent. He tells everyone, believe him. He tells everyone, love him. Listen to him. Pray to the Father through him. Listen, here's what Christ says. Lay up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. He says, forgive people when they do you wrong. Forgive them of that wrong. Be in a forgiving state and do it from the heart. Hard to do that on our own. He says, do not separate what God has joined together in marriage. The Old Testament, yes, Moses did allow divorce because of your hard heart. Christ comes along and says, don't do that except in this very small situation. Jesus says, humble yourselves. He says, don't be anxious. He says, don't fear them. Fear God. He says, worship the Father. You're all worried about, is it in Jerusalem or is it over there? Do I have to be down on my knees? How many offerings do I make? He says, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I contend, if we'll do those things right there, we will blow away the, the requirements, the righteous requirements of the Old Testament. Christ is after true righteousness. And it's not just, hey, I positionally put you in a place of righteousness at God's right hand. He wants you to live out a righteous life here that is now possible that was never possible before. God cares about practical, daily righteousness. How do we do that? Learning and obeying the commands of Christ. So do you see how this is tying together? Everybody... Look again, we're back at Matthew. Let's leave Romans here for a moment. Go back to Matthew 28, quickly. Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So you see the pattern, watch. The people who were disciples before us have been given a challenge to share the gospel with us. And then as we believe, their job is not done. Their job is to encourage us to express our faith in baptism. But even there, we're still not done. Now their job is to teach us the commands of Christ, all of them. And not just to teach them to us, but teach us their job. My job, your job, is to teach people to actually observe all the commands of Christ. Now write this thought. According to verse 20, to observe... Write it down. To observe all of Jesus' commands clearly includes verse 20. Now, if we'll think, if, we're to, if we are to teach people that we 
lead to Christ to observe and obey all the commands of Christ as it was taught to us, then when it was taught to us, I am now to obey that by going out and winning other people to Christ because that's the command. Go make disciples of all nations, help them get baptized, and start teaching them if all the commands. So all the commands definitely includes these last commands, which means go teach more people. Write this thought. To observe all the commands of Jesus clearly includes verse 20a, which means God's plan is for all of Jesus' disciples, all of his disciples, to be making more disciples. All disciples are to be making more disciples because verse 20 clearly implies that. That means you. You say, I'm a Christian. Have you been baptized? You say, I'm a Christian. Then how are you making disciples? You are to be learning you should always, we should always be in that phase. I am doing two things at once. I've been baptized. Now I'm learning the commands of Christ. And I'm teaching others the commands of Christ. I'm trying to evangelize people. And those who are being one to, one to the Lord. Then I am now teaching them to observe. Like I am also learning how to observe all the commands of Christ. Now here comes the big question. Exactly how do we do that? How? What is the technique? Jeff, what is the biblical technique of making disciples? Well, that's where it gets tricky, okay? Jeff, is it academic? Sitting across from somebody, maybe one-on-one, and going over a fact that Jesus says, and let me give you some facts about it and write these down, and we'll come back next week and see if you remembered them. Can you regurgitate what I taught you last week? Good. It's more than that. It is more than that. Techniques to make disciples happens in large group settings, like this morning. We're actually trying to fulfill the Great Commission right now. I'm trying to encourage all of you to actually not just be informed, but fulfill the Great Commission, which means don't just get saved and baptized, but learn the commands of Christ. I'm trying to do it right now. So it's in a large group. Sometimes it's in a small group. That's why we have Sunday schools. Sometimes it's in really small groups. It might be three or four people. And it may be one person teaching the other three or two other people. Or it may be each of them sitting there as iron sharpens iron, encouraging and keeping each other accountable and processing things. It is that. It is often one-on-one. That's probably the most effective method is one mature believer teaching a younger believer and walking through them just line by line, This going through the Word of God with someone, showing them how to study, how to pray, the commands of Christ, how to live that out. How'd you do this week? Okay, well, let's talk about that. How can we do better next week? What does the Lord want? What are you sensing? How is God working in your life? How do we do this? Guys, it could literally be pull up in the truck. Hey, man, hop in. We're going to work. And along your way to work, you're just discipling the person. And you're talking. And you're being a Christian friend. And you're processing life. It may be hop in because we're getting ready to go fishing or hunting. Or ladies, hop in. We're getting ready to go. We're going to go shopping together. But at lunch, we're going to talk about This and your Christian walk, and we're going to see where you're at. There's a thousand ways it can happen. But here's what I know. It is more than just being a Christian buddy and processing life's struggles. At the end of the day, here's what we know. A biblical method of discipleship must include clear instruction and encouragement in the commands of Christ. It has to include that. It must be time in the Word. It may be more than that. It might include and probably will include memorization. And it's going to include accountability. And it's going to have academic explanations sometimes. But with that, it is that friend and it is 
this mentor and coaching and all of these various aspects. It's done in church. It's done in Sunday schools. It's done in Bible studies. That's why some people write a book. Why'd you write that book? Because I want to make disciples. That's why people buy books and read them. This is why people use podcasts and television and radio and all these other different things trying to fulfill the Great Commission. Our goal is to put ourselves in a, in a spirit-led community of believers around God's Word where we encourage each other to obey. Back to Matthew 28. The last major point is in the second part of verse 20. And it's this. Jesus makes a valuable promise. Jesus makes an extremely valuable promise. Verse 20, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold, now catch this. You say, right, he sent his Holy Spirit. He did. But watch what Jesus says. Behold, I am. I, me. Like I might, here's what the Lord is saying. I myself am with you always. It's been noticed by many people. That verse 19 and 20, when the disciples first heard that, I'm assuming, number one, their jaw dropped in verse 18. All authority in heaven? You definitely deserve worship. But then when he goes further and says, go make disciples of all nations. We're just 11 guys. We're Galileans. Our own people reject us. They hate How are we going to make disciples of all? What's the plan? Literally, it's supposed to reach the whole world? So this would sound extremely daunting, and if not impossible, this is not possible. Watch what Christ does. He bookends this command with two things. He bookends it. Number one, he bookends it on the front side with a statement of his complete authority over all things. Guys, here's what that means. You may be sitting here this morning saying, man, I don't like that last point, that make disciples. He's implying that as a Christian, I'm supposed to be making disciples, and I'm uncomfortable, and that's just not my personality. Yeah, watch what Christ does. I have all authority. So disciples, you may feel like it's impossible. It may be even be uncomfortable, but I am making a demand on your life. Obey whether you feel capable or not. Do it. But on the backside, he bookends it with, write this down, a promise of his permanent, his permanent presence. So on the front side, I have all authority. Go therefore and do this, this, and this. Go therefore. And on the back side, I will be with you always to the end of the age. I will be with you. I myself. Literally, guys, Matthew is finishing where he began. Matthew, Matthew, don't flip there, but Matthew 21, verse number 23. Matthew 1, verse 23. He wrote that the virgin, this is in fulfillment, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name, anybody remember, it might be an I or an E, Emmanuel, which is God with us. So he begins in chapter 1, God is with us, and he lived among us for 30-some years, and these guys walked with him every day for about three years. God has been with us, but now he's going to go to heaven. But the Lord finishes by saying, yes, yes, yes I'm still with you. God is still with you. I am with you. So R.C. Sproul who's with the Lord, wrote this following quote, if you want to write it down. He says, knowing that Jesus, like knowing that Jesus is always with us, there should be no place on this globe that we are afraid to go. So if anyone here ever feels led to go to a place that's frightening, then remember the words of Sproul and remember the end, the, literally the last Phrases of the book of Matthew. 
knowing that Jesus is always with us, there should be no place on this globe we are afraid to go. He writes, and he's true. If he were standing beside us and said, come, go with me, we would go wherever he led us. We'd go anywhere. If we saw the risen Christ and he says, go with me over here, we're going to Turkey. Let's go. I'm with you. But he's so honest. Sproul writes, however, since we cannot see him, we do not always live as if he is with us. But this is his promise. I remember when I got called to preach. I was 12. Scared me to death. Still frightens me. This morning even. I'm there like, Lord, I don't feel like I'm ready. Lord, I'm, just, I'm struggling still on the inside. Or last week, I just could have had another 30 minutes. And I know you were like, yeah, if you look at it, you were like 100. You were like a long time. It's the longest one you preach in a long time. I get it. That, that was cutting short. I mean, and I'm like, Lord, this morning, but you know what the, the Lord instilled in me? Jeff, whether you see me or feel me, I'm so, you know who's up here with me this morning? Jesus. I cannot get rid of him. Everywhere I go, he goes. He is right there with you this morning. And that gives us. Now, here's the thing about the Lord's promises. So often, because we don't see them, it's going to require some faith to really act on what we don't yet see. I'll be with you. So, this is not the great suggestion, this is the great commission. It's a mandate. The one who has all authority in the universe has told all of us go make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them and teaching them to observe his commands, all his commands. Several years ago, I was at, uh, it, was a, it was a weeknight. A man named Bill Piper was being honored at First Baptist Church of Taylors, South Carolina, just above Greenville. Since they were honoring him, they, he was already passed away. They brought in his son, John, to preach. And so John Piper, I remember, sit, remember where I was sitting. And I remember him talking about this toward the front of his message and he singled out a group of people that I want to mention before we leave, because before we hit, finish this text, I want you to notice there is no retirement age to the Great Commission. So Piper, about a week before he would turn 70, said that many Christians in their 60s, 70s, and 80s have been lied to by the American dream to the effect that the last chapter of your life is all about leisure. That's a lie. Let me read it again. Many Christians in their 60s, 70s, and 80s have been lied to by the American dream to the effect that the last chapter of your life is all about leisure. That really is subtly put in our mind. You know, you're born, you're little, you're at home with mom, you go to school, you go through the, the young grades, you go to grade school, middle school, junior high, high school. Maybe you go to college or not. Probably jump in the workforce if you don't. You start dating. Maybe you don't. You get married. Maybe you don't. You go through your third, 20s, 30s, 40s. Get to your 50s. You start seeing a finish line, supposedly. And then you get into your 60s and you retire. And you think, I'm done with everything. Main goal now is, according to how much money we have, leisure, nonstop. And, and, and subtly, there's this mentality. How dare anything interrupt my leisure? But Piper continues. Many Christians in their 60s, 70s, and 80s have been lied to by the American dream to the effect that the last chapter of your life is all about leisure. Because if that's true, God has played a dirty trick on you because he has set you up to be the freest possible person for leisure 
at a time in your life when you can enjoy it the least. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I've been looking forward to this. And now I have hardly any energy to do all the things I thought I was going to do. Catch it. You've been lied to. And it's been a dirty trick on God's part because if that's the truth, he sets you up to be the freest possible person for leisure at a time in your life when you can enjoy it least. And he says, that's not his design. So I ask you this morning, if your mentality, you know some Christians have a mentality toward retirement as if it's heaven. Retirement on earth, heaven. Leisure. You know what heaven is. Heaven is heaven. Retirement is not heaven. And even when you get to heaven, it's not all leisure. We will serve him. His servants shall serve him. I don't know what all that will mean. It isn't all leisure. It sure isn't all leisure here. So to those of you who are in that category, and you maybe like check your life. Are these two things true? Can you honestly say, Jeff, I'm in those age groups, or I'm coming up on those, and I am going to continue to be discipled myself. But along with that, it's awesome. Keep being discipled. But I have to ask you, with all your experience where you've been walking with the Lord for all these years, what are you doing with all of that experience? Are you passing it on and teaching someone? You're like, that's not my personality. This is your calling. It's our calling. I think I missed a note earlier. I'm sure I did. And it had to talk about this. Yes, there is a spiritual gift. Did that note make it on the screen? Good, thankfully. I'm, I'm into skipping notes lately. I skipped the first note last week badly. And uh, I know it drove some of you like crazy when you got home. And like, yeah. Thankfully, Renee sent that out in the email. She had all the blanks for you. I would be the same way. Keep on till, till you literally can't do it anymore. Older folks, me, keep doing it till you can't do it anymore. Just keep, this is why we're here. Let's finish in Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, and we'll be done there. Romans chapter 10. Romans 10, back up to verse 9. Romans 10, verse 9. Because, what a great promise this section has. Many great promises. Really digest this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I believe Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is my Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart. By the way, God can't be fooled. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what we want. Like that believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you know what that means. That means I believe he died on the cross for sin and that God accepted his death on the cross as a payment, an adequate, sufficient payment for sin. And that's why God the Father raised him from the dead. And I believe that, and I've confessed he's the Lord. Then, you, then you're saved. Verse 10. For with the heart one believes. That's all we can do. One believes and is justified. You're declared righteous by God. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now watch 11, 12, 13. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Watch this last part of verse 12. This is an awesome statement. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. He's bestow God promises, I'll bestow, and by the way, he's very rich. God says, I'll bestow my riches on all who call on him. 
And if that's not clear enough, verse 13 makes it very clear. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You'll not go to hell. You'll get to go to heaven. You'll have the riches of Christ and the riches of God bestowed on you. This, I read that and I think then everyone should call on the Lord. Everyone should believe and everyone would receive these riches of God and be saved. Everyone should do that. I assume everyone would do that. But verse 14. How then, Paul writes, how then will they call? On him in whom they have not believed. So let's settle it. Everybody everybody who calls on the Lord. Like really from their heart and believe. And God can't be fooled. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord gets saved. Verse 13. But here's the problem. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? You know there are some people who have not yet called on the Lord. I contend the only reason that anyone. the, The reason that everyone has not yet called on the name of the Lord is because they don't yet believe that it would help them. They don't believe. But verse 14 goes further. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So I know that everyone who has yet to put their faith in Christ is not doing so because they don't believe in Christ. But now we find out the reason some don't believe. They don't believe because they've never heard. Well, wait a minute. Why haven't they heard? The verse continues. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? They haven't heard because someone hasn't preached to them. In verse 15, at the first part of the verse, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? So, quickly, everybody who calls on the name of the Lord gets saved and receives the riches of God through eternity. Everyone should do this. But many don't do it because they don't believe. But some don't do it because they don't believe and it's because they've never even heard. If they would hear, they might believe. Why haven't they heard? Because nobody's gone over and preached to them. Why haven't they gone over and preached to them? Because they've not yet been sent. And I believe the being sent has twofold to it. God sends his people to go tell others. And the church sends people to go tell others. If you're taking notes, write this down. The Great Commission is really accomplished as we pray And with that, I'll go back to verse 1 of chapter 10. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He prays for the lost. So when will the Great Commission be fulfilled? It'll be accomplished as we, God's people, pray and as we go. And as we, so we go ourselves. It'll happen as we send people. And it'll happen as we all speak. We all find our place in fulfilling the Great Commission. And it's going to require feet on the ground in the world's unreached places. See, there's places in war that we can drop bombs from 20,000 feet and it might have a good effect. But at the end of the day, the tough places, you're going to have to put boots on the ground to go in there and reach that property and take it. So, guys, there's unreached places in this world where we're going to have to, we're not just going to be able to drop flyers or get there by radio. Somebody's going to have, a Christian or Christians are going to have to go in there, get their feet into the unreached land, tell them about Christ, and spend time among those people making a disciple or a few disciples and then training them to go make disciples in the village and let that then teach them to make more disciples. This is God's plan. If it doesn't happen, If these three billion people we talked about last week, if they never hear about Christ, they will die and go to hell. That is all there is to it. They will die and go to hell. So we are called to take the gospel to the nations and make disciples of all nations. 
So Jeff, how many people do you feel are called to go overseas? I don't know. Many, many are called to go overseas. And I'll be honest with you, not everyone is called to go overseas. Biblically, not everyone is called to go overseas. And if you just heard that and internally went, okay, hang on. We're not done. Somebody's got to go tell these people. Three billion have never even heard. They, not, they don't have a chance to hear about Christ. If they don't hear about Christ, they cannot believe in him. If they don't put their faith in him, or well, they believe in God, that's not enough. They're going to go to hell. They're not going to get a chance right after they die. Well, since you didn't have a chance to hear the gospel, we're going to let you hear it real quick right now, and then you can, that's not going to happen. They will get what they deserve in hell. They will get what they deserve, but we want them to get mercy and grace. The only way they're going to get that is somebody's eventually got to go. Not everybody's called to go. Maybe you're thinking this, not just, whew, okay, not everybody's called to, or maybe you're thinking, Jeff, it's easy for you to stand up there and tell us. True. But can I rewind to when I was 12 years old, 40 years ago? And I'm far from perfect, but I am in my heart of hearts, just being totally honest with you. There was a time when I was 12 years old. And what I knew about the Lord and my relationship with Him, I surrendered my life to God. You do whatever you want. And you know what He called me to do? To be a preacher. And that was the scariest thing He could have called me to do. It was so scary. I am such an introvert. I am so afraid of public speaking. And God called me to do the very frightening thing. But that's what He's called me to do. From that time, over the last 40 years, multiple times since, I have reiterated that surrender. Lord, where do you want me to go? And he continues, I believe, I believe I'm where I'm supposed to be this morning. I can't tell you about next year. I can't tell you about when I'm 70. I can't tell you about when I'm 80, but this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm right now, this morning, doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Have you had that time in your life where you have surrendered to the Lord? God, that's the first step. Lord, I surrender, and I'm going to obey. Would you show me where you want me to be? Is my place here in Anderson? Is my place some other place on the other side of the world? I'll, I'm going to obey. God is going to meet people's needs around the world. This morning, there is a man. I don't know who he is. I don't know where he is. There's a man or a woman, and they know they are not right with the God who made them. They don't know much about this God, but they know they are not right with him. And like Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, they are in their own little broken way praying a prayer that God will receive this prayer. He will not receive their other prayer requests where they're praying for loved ones to get healed or to, to not die or to be raised from the dead. God's not receiving their prayer because they're not a, a Christian. But they, people all around the world today are praying, would you send me some information? I just feel like I'm coming up short. I'm not right with you. I feel like I'm in trouble. And God's going to answer their prayer by stirring up people, Christians, who are going to take the gospel to them. And he's going to stir up other people who are going to pray for those and support them while they are also fulfilling the Great Commission at home. So this is God's plan. Some go, and those that go, we pray for and we support while we are keeping the gospel and fulfilling the Great Commission here. So here's your last thought. And it's just a logical one. I ask you this morning, if God's primary purpose... By the way, I'm getting ready to say some things that are awesome things. If God's primary purpose for the church was only corporate worship, 
fellowship with believers. Get together and study God's word and gain knowledge about God and pray together and help each other become more practically holy. All of those are great things, follow me. If God's primary purpose for the church is only to worship together, fellowship with other believers, study God's word together and gain knowledge about him, pray together, and to become more practically godly and holy, then I would contend if that's all he's after, then when we're born again, he would immediately take us all to heaven because when we get to heaven... We're going to worship better than we do down here. We're going to fellowship a lot better than we do down here. We won't need to study the Bible. We're going to have God right there. We're, going to have not, we're not going to see through the glass darkly. We're going to see God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit as He is. We're going to be able to pray much more easily and not with all the hard work that it is currently. And we're going to be like perfectly holy. If that's all there is to it, He'd take us out immediately. So what's going on? Write this down. Making disciples is the primary activity that's been given to the church that can only be done in this life. It's the, it's the one. All these others we're going to be able to do better than we're doing now. This is our one shot. This is why the Great Commission is so urgent. And so I ask you this morning, how are you fulfilling? How are you fulfilling? All aspects of the Great Commission. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment. Bow your head. Chris and Eric will be making their way. They'll be singing for us in just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Just before they sing, just a couple of two or three questions. Talking to Christians this morning. Today's message is for Christians. How are you? Like, really answer this. Like, really be specific. Be honest with yourself. Answer in, inside. How are you currently making disciples? How are you currently? And by that we mean, obviously, evangelizing and telling people what it takes to become a Christian. Tell them about Jesus' death on the cross and about their sin. That God is a just God. He has to punish their sin. That God is a loving God and sent His only Son. And that God is a gracious God who will literally give them salvation for free if they'll trust His Son. Because His work on the cross is enough. How are you making disciples? But not just stopping at evangelism, like teaching. I saw one of our ladies this morning. I'll not embarrass her, but many times over the last two years, I've seen her with another one of our younger ladies on Wednesday in the fellowship hall, just like clockwork, sharing her life experience, pouring her life, making disciple, making a disciple of this younger lady. I commend both of them for their faithfulness. How are you? Be honest, be specific. Whatever you're thinking in your mind, it must at some point have Bible instruction involved. You say, Jeff, I don't have the spiritual gift of teaching. All Christians, whether you have the gift of teaching or not, are called to teach. Second thing I would ask you is this. We mentioned something last week, and I want to repeat it. Will you, you, there this morning, will you be a 3-4-3 Christian? Will you in your heart this morning commit between you and God, not to me, between you and the Lord, will you say, Father, this is what it's about. This is urgent. I will be praying. Father, I'm going to pray for missionaries. 
And Father, I'm going to give where the gospel is being presented and where the Great Commission is being fulfilled, making disciples. And if you come here, that would begin right here at Graceview. I am going to be a giver of my resources, and I am going to pray. And will you be a three-for-three Christian and honestly say to God, Lord, I am going to start using my mouth because all of the Great Commission is for all Christians. And then the last thing I would ask you this morning, would you just surrender to the Lord? Like, can you do this? Do you have the courage to surrender to the Lord and say, God, I want to fulfill the Great Commission, and I'll do it wherever you send me. I want to know, am I where you want me to be, or is it your will that I go to another place where they're not so reached or they are unreached completely? Lord, is that your will for my life? Would you just surrender your heart to the Lord and pray, God, would you give me clarity upon that? With this condition, God, what you show me, I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. Would you pray for that in the coming days? I think we'll just keep our heads bowed, eyes closed. What better way to finish the book of Matthew? What do we need to do with this book? There's a song that Chris and Eric are going to sing, and I encourage us. Let's close the book this way. Heads bowed, eyes closed. See my hands, look at my feet. It's okay if it's hard to believe. I have faith. You will do greater things. It's my time to go. But before I leave, go tell the world about me. I was dead. to do here before you leave. So go
stand with me this morning. Let's be dismissed. Father, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what we've learned, the gospel about Jesus, according to Matthew. Lord, I just want to say thank you. You have really taught us a lot of things the last three and a half years. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I thank you for every Thursday night when I was begging you to show me something came through over and over. Lord, I believe, I believe you showed us what this book calls for. I believe you've been honest with us. I believe you've opened it to us. Not because of anything to do with us. You're just good to us. Lord, let us take what we've learned. Let us live it. You want us to live righteous lives that glorifies the Father. So, Lord, I pray that we would do that, that we'd go the whole way and not be content to be holy. Lord, may we reproduce and multiply. May we tell the world it's lost all around us. Lord, remind us that there are people right here in Anderson who have yet to hear a clear presentation of the gospel. They don't believe because they've never heard. They've never heard because no one's ever told them. Would you send us, God? Will you send us? Lord, let us be surrendered. If you send us on the other side of the ocean, may we be surrendered and willing and love it. Embrace it, knowing that you.